0: This is the CIIS Public Programs podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Apela Colorado is a traditional cultural practitioner and indigenous scientist dedicated to creating a bridge between Western thought and indigenous worldviews. In her latest book, Woman Between the Worlds, Dr. Colorado invites us to explore how Indigenous wisdom resonates in modern life, while lovingly teaching us how to honor its power, beauty, and potential. In this episode, CIS faculty Susana Bustos joins Dr. Colorado for a conversation about her lifelong journey connecting with the essence of Indigenous spirituality and culture and reawakening to the wisdom of her Native American and French Gaul ancestors. This episode was recorded during a live online event on November 4th, 2021. A transcript is available at CIISpod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Good evening, Apela. It's so
1: good to be with you tonight. Thank you. It's a big honor for me to be in
2: your presence. You're welcome. It's good to be here.
1: Apila, you have such a long trajectory of studying indigenous wisdom and uh, living it. You know, it's your your whole life, your whole being has been like um, shaped and uh, searching deeper and deeper into that wisdom, that ancestral wisdom. And also, you have been bridging it into academic settings and activism and um, there's so much in your trajectory that's um, very appealing, very interesting in that uh, also it's inspiring in that way. I would like to uh, to ask you, you're coming from uh, the Oneida tribe. Uh, can you tell us what does Oneida uh, mean? And in yeah. what ways it has uh shaped your work
2: oneida uh the that's in English, but it's it's the original word is oniata aga, and it means people of the long, lasting or everlasting stone mm-hmm. and the way that it's impacted my life is um <laughs> every way basically. Because as a young woman, I learned to, um, I won't say read, but I learned to contemplate the petroglyphs, the rock symbols, and the rocks have those symbols on them because they're messages that ancestors wanted to pass on to generations for, it could be thousands of years when Descendants might not even speak the same language. So they had to think about how to transfer critical knowledge, life-sustaining knowledge, in a way that could go through time and change. That's why they created the, the uh, symbolism of the rock art. And by way of talking about that, now I want to acknowledge our ancestors Each of us on this call tonight, whether you're listening or Susanna and myself talking, we have ancestors behind us. And I acknowledge right now the ancestors and I ask you to come forward and be with us in this conversation. That what we say and how we say it, the tone of our voice, the intention in our mind, the feeling in our hearts, that it come together to serve creation. So uh, how, how the rocks have influenced my life. Studying them for many years, I would, uh, I would sketch them. I had the images around my bed. I would go to sleep thinking about them. And one rock in particular captivated me. And it was a rock about three feet long, more or less oval shaped. And it had what looked like um a giant like lizard or something, shaped like that, but jaws like a crocodile with teeth. And the tail was segmented. And in its in its claws, it held it held the the head of a thunderbird. And it took me years to even find out it was a thunderbird. And on its back, on the dorsal fin, it carried uh, a whale, or sometimes in other versions, in other rocks, it could be a shark. So there's an inversion. The sky and the thunder being, the consciousness is down below and the watery realm of emotion and spirit is on the top. That inversion is what's happening in the time between worlds now when Earth is going through her changes. The head and the intellect that's been so dominant for the last five hundred years, that's that is now learning to accept its place, not above, but beneath, what the heart and the spirit desire, and lead us to do and be in order to come in accord with creation. The rest of the symbol that of on this rock shows in the jaws a head. It's like almost like a happy face, but but with sort of oblong kind of eyes, and that that head is between the jaws and about to be eaten. In the middle of the being, you see two eyes, which is a water spirit, and then a spiral in here, and then segmented tails. One of the things that it means is that our consciousness. In order to go through the change that the earth is leading us through right now, the consciousness that we have is going to be devoured and then it's going to go through the spiral, which is a new like life coming through and the tail the segments show the generation of it's a circle so it's a whole thought mind coming out. It took me many many years to understand that um, and without really being conscious in a linear way, I uh, set about creating a academic program, a master's and a PhD. Mm-hmm. Now it's called In Indigenous Science and Peace Studies at the UN University for Peace in Costa Rica. And that that program is based on that one rock carving. And the program brings together both the settler community or the Western mind, along with indigenous practitioners and scholars, we come together and in the circle, we confront our histories, we research our genealogies, and we reclaim the indigenous mind for now, and we do it together. The power of the circle is really great because now we call, we divide people or name people settler or First Nations and Indigenous and settler is is accurate but it's not sufficient because how do you be an unsettler or how do you uh, in Canada there's a process of reconciliation going on and someone asked me once, well when do we finish this? Like how do we know if we're reconciled as far as i know the indigenous science peace studies program is the only one that's dedicated to to that but not exclusively for settlers it's for all of us who have dissociated or disconnected from the whole and as well as for indigenous people who want to work between the worlds and help create a creative membrane between these two ways of knowing. You could say head and heart. You could say indigenous and settler. You could say black and white, male and female. This process of this water spirit that was on the rock that I was referring to, this is the one that will take us through. It's generative.
1: It, it's a lot of information right there. And I, I'm I'm looking into... our uh, the, the time in between worlds, the time in between worlds. And you talk about this power of the intellect and how the water spirit spirit is the one that's gonna take us through. What What is it from the indigenous wisdom and the indigenous healers that you've uh, encountered you know, through your life, that could contribute to these uh, times of bridging, times of going into another level of consciousness. What what do we have to learn?
2: I once asked um, <clears throat> when I was a young woman, a young academic, and I had a really good friend, Hanson Ashley, in Navajo medicine, and I talk about our relationship in my book, and uh, I asked Hansen one day, I said, you know, Hansen, Christian people have transcendence as an aspiration, and Buddhists have enlightenment, but well, what do we have? If we're at the center of a medicine wheel, for example, what what do we say we are? So he didn't really, he didn't know either. So he said, I'm gonna ask my elders. So when he went back home to Navajo land, He asked the elders this question, the medicine people, and they talked about it for a couple of days. And then they told him this. They said, grandson, that word you're looking for is normal. To be normal, to be in the consciousness, the rich content consciousness of indigenous people is what keeps life going. And the medicine men? And the healers can help us get there. They tell, they do it through stories. They do it through their presence. They do it through ceremonies. They do it through teaching. Just to be with them, maybe it's a hug, and the knowledge is transferred.
1: You also talk about in your book. That's a beautiful, inspiring book for me. You, I'm. Very grateful for it. Thank you so much for writing that book. Um, you talk about the map of remembrance right mm-hmm. and and you come to your to creation story um, mm-hmm. and right now you're talking about Hanson Ashley yourself and I would like to read a quote mm-hmm. that you put in chapter two. Uh, That is his, he says, when you are out of balance, you need to go back to the creation story of your people. At that place of creation emergence, you put yourself in balance. And from that place of creation, tell your story in a new balanced way. Mm -hmm. That's a very powerful statement in that way. And and then you continue with questions in that chapter. You say, how do we find our indigenous creation story and our place in it today? How did we lose it in the first place? And how do we find and complete our relationships with all of life and reconnect? Especially if we've been cut off from our culture and ceremonial ways for generations. So those, those questions are really poignant, and uh, much of your book goes through answering these questions little by little. There are many people here listening to, tonight that haven't read your book, and I, I would like to ask you, you know, how mm. do we start? How do we start, like, finding the creation stories? How do we start finding our place
2: within it? The way back it begins right now. If you're listening and participating in this broadcast in some way, you're already on the path. So what would be a next step? For for me, I'll tell you how it happened. When I grew up, I think I say it in the book too, there were only two things we had as Oneida people because we had been removed from upstate New York to the state of Wisconsin, part of us. And by the time of my my generation, there were only taverns and churches, and neither of them filled that emptiness of identity inside of us. So my generation, uh, through the American Indian Movement and other ways, we began the search to recover our identities. And we traveled around to many places before we finally uh, we finally came to the point where, it was myself and Dorothy Ninham and our children, and one old Lakota elder, Rufus High Hawk. And he taught the young the children how to drum and sing, and we started doing ceremonies. and of course, What I thought at the time is, you know, we're not, we don't, I don't know if we're really doing this right or, you know, if it's it's hard when you've lost a lot in culture. And uh, I think people today have an idea that American Indians are culturally intact, but the last 500 years, you know, it's been hell and there's great losses that have been incurred and we're all trying to regain that. So Settler communities aren't the only one trying to regain the creation story and our place in it. American Indians are revitalizing it too. So yes. Yes. anyway, for me, uh, what what happened is that the ceremonies that we were doing, the pipe ceremonies, for example, was up in an attic of an old house in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the the beer-producing capital of the world. (laughs) And and we worked at the American Indian Council on Alcoholism. It was also the American Indian Movement headquarters. So our ceremony was in Dorothy's old house. Mm -hmm. And it was just she and I, the elder, and our children. And it's in the dark, and then spirit lights would come in all around us. And then we would hear voices in our in our high-pitched little voices. And and then sometimes animal spirits would come in and you could smell them and the floor would heave up and down. And then when certain spirits, I, I don't want to say the name out of respect, yes. when certain spirits would come in, the windows would go up and down on their own, doors would slam, right? And we thought that's normal, but we mm-hmm. didn't know it actually it is normal in the authentic ceremonies, but it doesn't happen for everybody. And soon we started having a lot of visitors come to our ceremonies from what you would say more culturally intact tribes to witness witnesses and to add to it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what taught me the most important thing, that culture, that sacred power that we've lost, you can get it back. That was the first thing that really opened my eyes and my heart, filled me with joy. But then there was this other part of myself, the part that's, uh, at the time I would have said French ancestry, like my grandfather spoke French. And always I felt like going into ceremonies, which were illegal until 1978, and it happened that I was a student board member on the organization that American uh, it was an East Coast group, and the they fought a line of cases, developed a line of cases, and then penned the American Indian Freedom of Religion Law. And I got to be in on all those deliberations. And I also did the American Indian Child Welfare Law. They wrote that as well. So, So wonderful wonderful experience for me to to be immersed in that and to see what it takes to get back to get back our sacred power when it's been suppressed and taken right but i heard elders at the same time one time an elder said the problems of our world and at that time it was the world was seen pretty much because of laws that kept indians on reservations without they had to stay there and get permission from BIA to leave and so forth, Bureau of Indian Affairs. So in my generation now, we're all starting to come out and meet each other and kind of shake off the hell of a few hundred years of of genocide, right? And as we're coming in contact with each other, the the problem was viewed as a problem between Indians and white people, right? It wouldn't be settlers and whatever we said, settlers and indigenous today. So this elder said to me, he said, the problems of our world can be solved when the right white man remembers again who he is. Then we can sit together as equals and work out our differences. I thought, well, that's a strange thing to say. We're the ones who lost most of the continent. What is it that the white man has to do to be equal? And then another thought came. He's saying, when the white man remembers. And I said, whoa, oh, then that means the French side of me can remember my French indigenosity. And that those those two thoughts, that the power we've lost, we can get it back, and the white man can remember. That inspired my work and my life. That's beautiful. So what I heard
1: is that by means of ceremony and gathering, we can also uh, get back the lost ways.
2: And the main lost way is our conscious, being conscious in the web of relations that we live in. And this gets to women's knowledge too. Yes. Uh, the reason that it's a water spirit is it's a new life comes through a womb and the womb has waters in it. Yes. And the fetus in the womb looks like a lizard, just like the water spirit that's written on or inscribed on that rock, right? Yes. It's- yeah.
1: And you say in in, in some at some point also in the book, that you you had been hearing for a long time that it was time. The elders were saying it's time for the women. This is the time for the women to lead.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. That was for about the past 10 or 15 years. Elders all over the world were saying it's time for the women to come forward now. Yes.
1: And so when, you know, I I just come back again to the the times that we're in right now, the times in between worlds and the birthing of a new consciousness through the water and through the feminine racing. And, and, you know, I don't know exactly what form it's going to take, but it's like that knowledge of interdependence that I see uh, in what you're conveying right now, that the woman, the woman, uh, women carry in in you know very deeply within.
2: I think for uh, for people listening to this call tonight, maybe or you know I'm thinking of women with children, I'm thinking of uh, single parent families, and the way my life worked out. I was able to travel the world and network indigenous healers. And by way of my childhood prayers, I say in the book how I grew up with a lot of alcoholism and violence. And I would go to sleep at night just like vividly, like vividly, vividly imagining various ways my family could be healed and how we could come together again over and over and over and over. And that childhood desire and uh, envisioning a healed family, that has taken me so far that I, besides uh, my bachelor's degree, which I was the only American Indian at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee at the time, and then I went on for a master's and then even a Ph.D., and the way that those doors opened for me were in direct response to that childhood prayer. Uh, I didn't see it at the time, but looking back, it's really, really clear. I talk a bit in the book too about seeing the sign, how I should how I knew I should go for my PhD program. It actually was a literal gold sign hanging on the university stairwell, right? So um, For women, for women right now, what if you're working nine to five, you have kids, you're a professional, whatever, where you can start is this, you make an altar and on the altar you have representation of each of the elements and then you do something that's sometimes difficult for people, you have some pictures of your family maybe your grandmother, your grandfather, however far back you can go. And sometimes people don't like to do this because every family has difficult people in their line. And maybe they don't want to do that, but that's where the gold is. And then you start researching one of your family lines. Like uh, if, you're, if you're French or Polish or of that descent, you take one of those lines in the U.S. People often have four, five, six nationalities, but a nationality is a political designation. It's not your cultural identity. So you're going back. The idea is you're going back to your your tribal identity and you're finding your creation story. Because as women, like we we create people. <laughs> <laughs> we have help but we that's our. that's what we can do right? so the creation story has particular relevance for us um and for me double so because on the oniata aga side the our creation begins with the sky woman mm-hmm. so it begins with the mother and yes. that orients people in a different way when you come at it that way uh, you know what i this is getting off the track a little bit but, but not completely when I'm in uh Central Asia mm-hmm. or Siberia with indigenous people, I was I was shocked because there was a we were having a fire ceremony and they asked me to start it. And even in, in my culture, normally it'll be the men that do that. Mm-hmm. Uh women take care of like the fire in the house and the men take care of the public fire, right? Mm-hmm. So this was an a... and then they said, Well, no, in our culture the fire the fire ceremony is um uh otene. it's mm. a woman and then i started thinking wow what if the sun and the fire was a was a woman can you yes. think how different it would, would be yeah if we think father son holy ghost or holy spirit what if the son was a woman same thing in japan the amaterasu omikami is a woman right Mm-hmm. the whole earth would be different with that understanding so anyway getting back to creating an altar can i can will... i say something like very yes. short
1: there i was sure. coming from my from my own uh you know german uh ancestry right uh yeah. in in german uh the sun is die sonne die yes. sonne is yeah it's also yeah. feminine and their yeah. moon is uh yeah it's a masculine for the moon just just bringing that up, because I imagine that in other languages we also
2: yes. find that though it's not pervasive right so you have a you have a, a candle I have one here Thank <laughs> you. you have a candle <laughs> on your altar, you have a glass of water, which is important, and you have something that represents the wind it can be a feather or a fan but if if you use a bird or a bird feather or Something. Try to get it to be from a bird that also exists in your homeland, in one of your homelands, right? Um, and so, water, wind, air, earth—you can have a pottery or something on your altar. Pictures of your of your ancestors, as censuses as like I just passed day of the dead. Easy to think of these things and how to make an altar, but it doesn't have to be exotic. It has to be functional right? So you can sit there and just think or be quiet for a while and call to your ancestors. And here's a good way to do that. You go and find a tree. And again, try to find a tree that exists in one of your ancestral lands. And you make an offering. And you ask that tree to help you to find your ancestry and your creation story. And also, if it's been a long time since anyone in your family has done that, you need to make an apology. I'm sorry that we never remembered you for so long, ancestors. And I'm really, I really need your help now. And it, you know, if you're willing to help me, then you know, I won't forget you again in the future, something like that, however, it feels right to you. Mm-hmm. And you leave that offering can be some milk. It can be tobacco. You know, if you want to use American Indian way to get you started, but don't commit to it, <laughs> you could do that too. Or you can use a clean, like German, you could use ale that's as clean as you could get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or Anglo-Saxon too. Mm-hmm. And you make that offering, you ask for help. Then you maintain your your altar. And meanwhile, if you know that you're a, Polish or uh, Nigerian or, or South African descent, you start researching what do the traditional clothes look like. And even if it's medieval and more folk art, look at the symbols on it. The symbols will tell you what plants are important, what directions are important. It will bring beauty back into your life as well. And then watch your dreams. So when you do these things, when you make your offering and you keep your altar, and then it's also really good to look at rock symbols from the land that your ancestors come from, and keep them around you because they have just a strong psychic impact on us. Just if you're like me, and what I began to study the rocks, which were like my ABCs of whole, of holism. It's like oh I'm not getting it I'm not it's not telling me anything that I'd be with elders and they would take it just a glance and they knew what it's saying right yes yeah. took it took years and I finally can do a few right yes um, I always have to fight my academic mind too yes that's part of the part of my disconnect right so right. then what happens when you're doing that how do you know you're on the right track well, synchronicities is that's one good thing. Like a book falls, <laughs> a book falls on your head. Woman exactly. between the worlds. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Remember, I called your So But uh, it's like that, or or you find a newspaper or someone left on an airplane seat or something. You know, or you bump into somebody who tells you something, or. They start to happen more and more, and then the dreams come. And and if you ask the ancestors, I always when I when I ask for help, I always say for good purposes because, of course, there are like there are spirits or forces of nature that can really hurt us too. Yes. So and and if you if you listen to sound, pay attention to music from one of your homelands, mm-hmm. right? Sounds can do it as well. Watch what you start paying attention to, be conscious of it. And if you can have someone else to share this journey with, all the better. I mean, not everybody's going to come to the university for peace and so. get a master's or a PhD. But these things I'm saying, we all can do, men and women alike. Mm-hmm. And especially if you have children in your home, you, you can... Sort of keep the candle at a distance, but you could put a toy animals or something on your altar as well for animal spirits, something that your children can relate with you know
1: I also wonder you know about the wisdom of the of the children, you know, and how when you start intending certain things and put your altar right there, you know there is also this uh these words, this uh uh yes. wisdom coming from them that feed into your search.
2: Um, a few years ago, my one of my daughters took me out for um, a lunch. It was my birthday. And I don't know, I was probably mm-hmm. turning 70 or something at the time. And my granddaughter, who was about um, nine, she was sitting across the table from me. And, of course, she had her phone. She's playing a game, right? Mm-hmm. And she just looked up and she said, Grandma, there's no such thing as old. It's just, if you want to do something, do it. And she went back to her game. So,
1: all right. Okay. (laughs) Full rewiring right there. (laughs) Just
2: like a simple
1: sentence. Download,
2: download. Got it. Yes.
1: So beautiful. I'm curious about, you know, in this, Process of setting the altar and like in connecting in the ways that you've said and doing the prayers. What's the relationship to place, and what's the relate to the place that, that you live? You know, that's probably not your ancestral place. Mm-hmm. And also, what's your relationship with the cycles of uh, ceremonial cycles that were part of that place? If you are not within that uh, tradition.
2: Yeah, uh, For me, the way you know, I've been, I've been really blessed if I if I stop and think about it, because the Oniata Aga part really has helped my French part to remember. Mm. I I said in an earlier conversation with you that I'm able to go to France every year for ceremonies. And there are Occitan indigenous people there still speaking their indigenous language wow. despite the ravages of Roman invasion and 700 years of, of inquisition. You mm. know, mm. it's uh, It's just
1: incredible.
2: And still, so and they're not the only indigenous people in Europe. There are indigenous people everywhere in the world, right? So if mm. if you're able to get to know some of these people you know, maybe through social media or something that's good. But for most people, it, you know, it, it's hard to find the time to create relationships like that, to find them and create them. But when you start in this process, they began to show up. That's that's one thing. The other thing, of course, is just how this call began, acknowledging the land that we're on. Mm-hmm. Like, like For right in, where I am right in this minute, I'm I'm in Southeast Alaska. I'm on the land of the Tlingit people. Mm-hmm. And one of my mentors was from here, Donawak. There's a whole chapter on him in the book. Yes. Right. So I was blessed in a sense that I got to travel around a lot, be mentored by lots of elders, and then be in indigenous ceremonies. And where I grew up in Wisconsin, um, the ceremonies had been because of the oppression of American Indian spirituality and culture in the United States. when the ceremonies came out, they were like fresh like before the invasion mm. they were mm. and they were strict too right mm. and um that gave me a really good grounding for for my life's work and yes. and it gave me low tolerance for new age craziness and dissociation. And what's particularly particularly not a good idea to do when you begin your authentic search for your ceremonies and your identity, it's uh, really good to not take bits and pieces of other people's culture to find your own. Like if you're going to, when I was young, like you couldn't even burn cedar. It, that all the practices were suppressed. Now you can go into bookstores and buy smudge sticks and then they'll blend it with, I saw some today blended with lavender, blended with copal, but it's, don't do it, don't do it. It, You know, if if you don't know what your own people did and you need to use cedar or sage to begin with, when you make your prayers say, I'm using this until I find my own.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. I am just like curious about this too and I know I have two questions here. One one of the questions is you know there I'm thinking of the Native American church. Yes. And uh, you know how you have you know the possibility of being invited to ceremonies, right? There is also correct. the sweat lodges, you know that mm-hmm. are happening from different traditions that you also are invited and um and then um Many people at CIIS, you know, like go into getting to know these old ways. Um, Maybe like scratching the surface, and some like like linger around this way so that they learn more, right? Mm -hmm. When you're saying, when you're saying, um, don't use don't use cedar, or you know, if you don't know what you're doing, like to what extent? You know, we're, I just want to be respectful in this question and and asking you, like, what are the dangers of of that? And and what, what are things that are opening up also now for people who really are looking for their own roots, you know, and go into their own roots through borrowed traditions?
2: Yeah, borrowed is a nice word for it. Stolen is another not-so-nice. So So how Mm -hmm. do we find that when we're we're genuinely looking for our own ceremony and our Mm -hmm. own authentic identity and someone invites you to a sweat lodge or a peyote ceremony, you can go. But then I would ask you, who as? If you go in there as like the supplicant, I'm a settler. I'm so lucky just to be here. I'm an oppressor. And and, I, and the half of me that's white, I can say that because I used to feel that in ceremonies. Sometimes I'd be the only mixed blood person in the teepee or in a ceremonial room. And I could feel my presence, my mixed blood presence caused like anxiety or resentment or I could feel it in the room, you know. But that the good mm, part about that yes. was that it spurred me to know so what is this white part of myself? Who is this oppressor? Mm-hmm. And how do I make peace with this being? Right. So yes. you can so I would say if you're invited and you have the chance, go in. But when when you talk to people or you know, introduce yourself, <laughs> a woman who works with me, I was telling her, I said, you know, since Europeans or whoever came to America, American Indians have been asking, who are you? And to this day, nobody answers, right? So who am I? I'm Oneyata Aga, and I am Gaul. I am an indigenous woman, right? So if you're going to these ceremonies, so this woman working with me is really a smart woman, has a background in diplomacy, okay. uh and uh, worked for the United States government and everything. I said, you know, I, I told her which she was coming traveling with me to Kyrgyz people, and I said, so when you're asked to introduce yourself, you can't just say I'm I'm a peeler from Chicago or whatever. So all right, so she's got it. Because if you if you don't know who you are, there's just like you have to do things to get on on uh, on the internet. You have to like log in, you have to do all the. If you want to get into indigenous knowledge, elders are going to test you because yeah. they have to figure out how to talk to you. That's right. Um, and I also write st- about that in my book too, when I had a horrifying moment after it was in Southeast Alaska and I'd traveled to meet this elder and another Tlingit, uh friend who was also a uh, chief took me took me to introduce me to this uh, Eagle Clan man. Mm-hmm. And I was adopted into Ravens, so the two moieties. So anyway, I'm freezing cold because I went on seaplane. I went on a skiff and I mean, raining, blowing. And I, I was I was shaking with cold. So we get into this house on an island here. And here's uh, Cyrus Peck, the elder, shock of white hair and Sitting there, we get into like the mud room, mm-hmm. and then here's the wood stove, but Cyrus is in an easy chair, he was in his 90s at the time. In front of the stove, and over here is the couch. Mm-hmm. And so we're standing here, and then my my dear friend Richard Dalton said, you know, he introduces me and and then and then the old man looks up and he says, uh, hmm. And at the time, um, I was married to a man named Morrison. Uh, who was a heider, and so so the eagle clan patriarch looks up and he says Morrison, hmm, we have a nephew over there. And I said, oh, you know that's wonderful. And I'm standing there, cold, cold, shaking, shaking. And there's a silence, and after a while, it's like you could, in my mind, hear a clock go tick, tick, tick. And I think, wow, I was supposed to say something. What am I supposed to say? I, Oh my God, I'm supposed to know who the nephew is, right? <laughs> and, and then and I don't know what came. Somehow my brain, somehow I said, Oh, Paul Morrison. And he says, and who had been dead before I even arrived, 20 years before I but somehow I heard it somewhere. And so I sat and he says, Yes, sit down. Oh my goodness. Yeah, otherwise yeah. we aren't going to talk at all. So I tell all these things to my uh, to my associate, Beth, and we mm. get into this yurt in Central Asia and it's filled with shamans. And after I talk and do my thing, and we're talking, then they say, so, so, who are you? And she says, I'm Beth uh, from Baltimore. She said, That's near DC. And then she caught herself and was like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> So, so we have a standing joke. Like, whenever it gets to one of these rough, I'm Beth from Baltimore. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, when you meet Native people, and if you're asked to a ceremony, maybe, maybe you can't say, my tribe is Teuton or my tribe is Gaul. You know, because you're just starting to remember, but you can do better than Beth from Baltimore. You can say, "I'm, I'm, I'm." Beth and my ancestors came from uh, New Zealand, or my aunt, whatever. You know, at least get to start with a nation, state, and then work in work through your mother's line back. You know, yes. Uh,
1: so, the, in in a place, you know, that brings me back to the question about like. Place and um, you know you're talking about okay yeah for example like you come from New Zealand right but that's place right again it's orientation it's like where are we coming from what land are we connected with with originally
2: yes it's like for example if you're from Scandinavia and your last name is Berg bERG and you look into it you say mountain okay well mm-hmm. then you say I'm Beth from the Mountain in Sweden, right? So I always encourage people, like, look into your family name, too. What does it mean? Yes. Right? There's yes. so many ways. The ancestors are calling to us, and the earth is, through sacred sites, pulsing with energy, wanting to bring us back into accord with these changes, profound changes in the, the dynamics of, of creation. Yes.
1: And that brings me also to another question that's related that, um, to ceremonial ways and uh, has to do with with the uh, spread of uh, psychotropic plant medicines into the West as well that come from, you know, particular traditions, you know. And you talk in your book about your uh, participation in TP meetings in, in that way. Yeah. Um, and what we have right now it's uh, you know the the profile, the the ways in which in which uh in old times the ceremonies were held have been mixed, and there are there are many there is a diversification of settings, I would say, right that also like comes together with the renaissance of the psychedelic movement, you know for mm-hmm. uh, therapeutic um purposes right now. I, I wonder what what are your thoughts around that, and what would you advise to people that are participating in this in this ways with these powerful medicines? Uh,
2: when I was when I was in my doctoral program, <clears throat> and I I also went to I was going to peyote ceremonies, really ancient ancient forms of peyote ceremonies. And some of the practitioners have been five generations running these ceremonies, you know. And it, but it could be the same, like with sweat lodges and all the ceremonies that were opening up when I was young, and they were really authentic and I said really strict. Uh, it's it's hard for me to see the misuse. I'll say or casual use of these powerful plant medicines. But why it's hard to see is because the people, I have so much compassion because of my own search and journey for identity, for people who have this longing to Mm -hmm. reconnect, to be whole, to feel the presence of the sacred in ourselves and in life, right? That's a real cry. And then... Sometimes all a person can find is these one-off, ten times off versions of authentic ceremonies, and when people do that, it's like you're settling for so little. Yeah. And the you know I, there are times where when I was young and I wrote my PhD in uh, NATO about Native American addition, uh, addictions. And I said, well, at the, that the cure for the addictions would be the return of our ceremonies and our sacred ways. And then I, I talked about peyote because people, American Indians had to fight really hard to maintain that ceremony. And the only way to do it for a long time was to talk about it as Native American church, to sort of present it as a church. It happened in Oklahoma. And it was it was a compromise, but it was a way that kept the ceremony going. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, it was a bad compromise because when you try to mix two different traditions, they say like, when you have a, an authentic peyote ceremony, in the morning when the woman brings in the water and the three kinds of foods, people are of one mind. And it often happens in conversation after the food, you find out that you all received a certain message. One night I was in a ceremony. It turned out we all received messages about the water, right? Yes. Another time, I the first vision I ever had, It. I went to this mountain and I saw these rocks. And that mountain you mentioned, like I'm right there in this territory now, right? And that was the first time a vision came to me and then a few years later I came to the same I came to that place in reality. Yes. I want those results for people who are searching for their power. Not not I don't know, not some further dissociation from ourself. And I I don't, you know, I don't know what to say to people who, if that's all you have, and I have people say, Many people say, like, well, you know, I did it with really good intentions. I fasted first, whatever. Okay, but it's dangerous because these ancient ceremonies, like the chants and so forth, they've been fashioned over thousands of years, and the chants that are going on, like, your mind is changing. The medicine is working with your spirit. Your consciousness is changing. And the chants take you to the place you need to go to your that innermost sacred light, right? And then bring you back. That's and then if you get when you go in, like the Hanson Ashley quote, when the, I can remember being at a peyote ceremony and <laughs> my Western mind would get me in trouble because I was always fighting the medicine, you know, my mm-hmm. this mind. And that would make me sick and I would throw up, right? Because mm-hmm. I had to yes. get that out. So they had like tin coffee cans. They used to call me Canhead. <laughs> so, so the advice I'm giving, I came to it the hard way, right? Yeah. Um, so what I would wish with people doing all these alternative things, it's like I really, really say, don't, don't stop there. Don't throw your mother and grandmothers away. Keep the search. Find out what's authentic to you. And when you do, like uh, an elder told me this when I was a young woman, and he said, because I thought in my mind, like I read Carlos Castaneda Don Juan, and at the first book he had at the back, he says how he's getting his PhD and all this, and then he becomes a shaman. I thought, ooh, that's what I wanna do. That's exactly. the very thing I wanna do. Okay, right. <laughs> well, this elder, Collady, he set me straight on that. He said, Girl, you ain't no shaman. If you was going to be a healer, you would have been that at, at birth. The elders would have seen that. He says, but don't worry. If the ancestors just give you a little piece to do, you do that piece, and you'll be completely happy and fulfilled. Yes. And that's it. So what I do between the worlds, like I never wanted to be between the worlds. I wanted to be in my indigenous world, right? Mm. But now they're one. And they're separate. And that's the story of that water spirit, what my husband's people, the Hawaiians, call the mo'o. It's their they're opposites, and they're the same. Yes. And standing in the paradox with consciousness is what brings in the overtone or the spirit or the life we're looking for. Yeah. You want an alternate consciousness? Fast. Hmm. Here they drink salt water. Oh, you know. um, yes. Yeah, it's it isn't about self gratification, really. It's about that deep, deep longing for authenticity. For like, why do you exist? Why do I exist? We yes. have a purpose. We're here, right? So when we do that, the earth starts to heal. When I be who I am, right. Yeah. And there's all kinds of help. We have that lineage. We have ancestors for generations just waiting for us to say, would you help me? Bam, the door opens and in they come.
1: I wonder in your book too, you talk about, uh, you know, your journey with cancer. Yeah. Right? And so th- there's also sickness you know in in that we you know in on Monday when we had a chance to talk to you were talking about trauma right and and the the shadow aspect of trauma and the light um uh, uh, aspect of trauma as well and and I wonder, you know what are your thoughts also uh, about Going into wholeness, finding deeper identity through these tests, like sickness, like as a teacher
2: in that way, you know, trauma. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no way to it but through it. You know, that's basically what it comes down to. And for me, I started having dreams with my first bout of cancer. I had breast cancer twice, and I. I've been healthy for many years now, yes. but uh, when I when the first time I had cancer, breast cancer, I started having dreams, and in the dreams there would be a woman, a Caucasian woman with this kind of light brown hair, and she would be like one point she's running through woods that look like redwoods and somebody's chasing her, like trying to kill her. And she's looking for safety. And it would just be dream after dream. And it was so obvious, like that white part of myself, my my grandmother, my whatever, all the women, they're like, acknowledge me, acknowledge mm. me. right? And that mm. those dreams really um, made me conscious that I needed to really look at that. So I was teaching at CIIS at the time, and one of my colleagues, Daniel Mm -hmm. Delorier, coming from Quebec, is a fluent French speaker, and I said, we're out on the Redwoods where we taught our classes in Indigenous mind, our traditional knowledge, rather. I said, okay, I'm going to make a prayer, Daniel. And because Canadian French is based on a really old form of French, And I reckoned that Mm -hmm. my ancestors from France that came into Quebec in the 1600s would respond to that language. So I said, I'm going to say a prayer in English, and I I want you to say it in French, right? And the students from CIS and myself and Daniel, we held hands in a circle, and I made this prayer to my ancestors and said, I want to forgive me for being... just what I said, and please help me find my way back to you. Right. Mm-hmm. So the dreams, the the trauma of cancer that opened that up for me. Uh, the other thing which I say in the book is there's a point going through radiation where right near the end of it I got so so ill that I I I thought I was dying and actually I was, because they bring you right right to the point of death. And I was laying on the table, and the the looks like an umbrella on an arm was sweeping over my body, and it just has this high pitch like whines, like that, and it, it, even lighter, though, and it was went over me like that. And I was thinking as that was happening, the feeling in my body, I'm lying, mm-hmm. and my whole body felt like it was starting to rotate. It would have been like in a clockwise clockwise direction but as it was rotating i could feel my spirit sliding off and i thought in that moment i am dying and i mm. was in the process and to my surprise i looked down at the floor and said mother earth i love you and that's okay so and then the radiation stopped i got off the table and I made it to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. I didn't want the doctors or nurses to see how weak I was because I thought they might make me stay there. I didn't want to stay there, right? So later on, I get myself home and I walk into the door of where I was staying, which was a beautiful apartment right on the ocean on Maui. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Friends had had given that place for me to stay while I was recovering and- I walked in the apartment. I, I couldn't even stand to open. put the key in the door. I had to lean against the outside of the building to put the key in. And I got in and slipped around the wall uh, on the other side. And I was laying back like that. And the wind coming through from the ocean went, bam, slammed the door shut. And because of that, some boxes that had been sent to me from uh, where I had lived in Canada had arrived at a black briefcase, cloth briefcase, sort of. Fell open and some paper slid out. I'm like, oh, I don't even know if I'm strong enough to pick it up. Mm-hmm. So I I leaned over and I picked up this piece of paper. I'm sorry, there's a an, uh, noise. Anyway, that's fine. I picked up this piece of paper and there were notes from Pete Ketches, a Lakota elder who had mm-hmm. talked at Stanford in Indian Studies Week. And what he was talking about is how how the Sundance used to be and how in, he said, it's not like now where young people show up their scars and everything. He said, in the old days, the people were really humble. They felt the pull of the earth and her love. And I realized what just happened to me. I felt the pull of the earth and her love. I thought I'm dying from this cancer. And that said, I'm going to the earth. I didn't get I'm alive because she held me here. That's it. So beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. And then you're welcome. And then the next thing that happened is I'm I'm upstairs in the bed and I got really sick, and the, the skin started breaking down on my breast, and it was just oozing lymphatic fluids. It's just, I was just a wreck. I was so weak. One day, this, I only could take one phone call. That's how weak I was. And I had to get off the call. And I was sitting there, you know, like laying in bed. Like, what am I? I'm so, I'm sick. I'm Maybe I'm dying, but I'm so bored and I can't do anything. And I had this doctoral dissertation from a Mohawk student, Brian Rice. And he's from the same Iroquois people that my Oneida people are from. There's Six different tribes, right? So his dissertation uh-huh. was just papers, and it was that thick. And I reached down. I was so weak. The papers just all, what I could pick up, all slid out of my hand on the floor. And there were only, like, two pieces left. And then I looked at the two pieces in my hand, and Brian had was... uh he was writing about our Iroquois creation story in this part, and he was putting it in more modern English because all we had in English was early ethnographer reports and just boring and stupid, you know. So so he was updating it so people could feel, if you can't speak Oneida or Mohawk, here's the better English that's closer to the language, right? So yes. I picked it up and I read a part of the creation story I never heard of. And it's when the sky world is, when the sky woman is still in the sky world, Mm -hmm. and she has a task she has to do. She has to fry this corn mush, which is, we like corn a lot. Mm -hmm. Corn, beans, and squash are three sisters for us. So she has this job. She has to fry this corn mush, and it's for a man in her family, like her Mm -hmm. uncle. And when she's frying it, I'm reading this, as she's frying this, it's the grease splatters and hits her body, and her skin peels. And I'm like, I'm reading it with my skin peeling on my chest. And then I started to cry and laugh at the same time. I said, "Live or die, I'm on the right path. I'm on the path of the sky woman. So can't can't go wrong. can go wrong. And that's yeah. the first place. I that's the first moment I found myself." in my creation story. It wasn't an abstraction. It wasn't an ideal. I was in it. And I was alive. Yes. And I am.
1: <laughs> and you are. Look at yourself right now. Thank goodness. <laughs>
2: Just let me say this. Yes. Yana huayna, yana huayna, yana huena. yana huena, yana yana thank you, ancestors.
1: Abdullah, thank you so much for all this conversation, for your wisdom, for caring your ancestors too, for uh, waking up that that call inside as well through your own quest, you know, the way that you talk and speak and um, yeah, i I'm. I'm really happy to have had this conversation with you and to share it with all the audience and the uh, people that are going to come later as well to listen to this.
2: Good. So I'm going yawa, to- thank you. And yawa, go, is good. Really good. Thank
0: you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website CIIS.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.